If you were to try to summarize the life of Jesus, what events would you include? What things would you focus on? And what, what things would you leave out? I mean, you, you can't say everything, right? You can't repeat every story from the Gospels. You can't repeat every parable, or then it wouldn't be a summary anymore, right? What, how would you summarize the life of Jesus? Well, since we're getting close to Christmas, it'd probably be on your mind, right, to start with Jesus being born of a virgin. And uh, perhaps you talk a little bit about his life and his miracles, how he healed people and cast out demons and things like that. And then definitely you would talk about how Jesus died on the cross for our sin and how he rose again on the third day. And maybe you would even say, that's not the end of the story, but one day he's going to come back. He's going to return for believers, for his church. But what if somebody said, okay, well, that's a, that's a pretty good summary, but where is he now? What is he doing now? I mean, you, you said he died and he rose, and you said he's coming back, but coming back from where? And if he rose from the dead, never to die again, is he still here somewhere on the earth? Where is he? And, and what is he doing? Well, one of the reasons why something like the Apostles' Creed is so helpful for us is because it gives us a brief and powerful summary of the life of Jesus that's better than anything you or I could come up with off the top of our heads. And the Apostles' Creed focuses on and tells us about what happened between the death and resurrection of Jesus and the future return of Jesus. It tells us where Jesus is, reminds us what happened after his resurrection, and that helps us remember that the Bible talks about these things too, and that these things are important. The the Apostles' Creed, as we've said before, it it doesn't have a lot of extra stuff in it. It, It focuses on the most essential and central truths to the Christian faith, those things that all Christians agree on and affirm. And sometimes it reminds us that the Bible talks about things, addresses things that we forget to think about. And I feel like that's the case this morning for the the portion of the Apostles' Creed that we're focusing on. And and it's going to push us back to the Bible to see what the Bible says about these things. But the, the phrase that we're focusing on this morning is that he... Um, ascended into heaven, right, to the right hand of God the Father, right, that he's, that's where he's seated, and that he's coming again to judge the living and the dead, right, so it, it talks about three things, in other words, that we're going to focus on this morning, Jesus' ascent into heaven, his being seated at God's right hand, and then his return one day to judge. Those are things we don't think about as often. Jesus' ascent and Jesus' session, we call it. But those are things that the Bible talks about at greater length than we might think. We know it talks a lot about the death of Jesus. We know it talks a lot about the resurrection of Jesus. But have you noticed how much it talks about the session of Jesus? How important and significant it is that even now Jesus is seated at the Father's right hand. It does. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So let's start with the ascension of Christ. 
That he ascended into heaven, as the Apostles' Creed says. Now, the story of Jesus' ascension only shows up in a couple of places. Three, if you count the longer ending of the Gospel of Mark. That's debated. But it shows up at the end of the Gospel of Luke, and it shows up at the beginning of the book of Acts. Now, that's significant because Luke wrote both of those books. Of course, he wrote the Gospel according to Luke, but he also wrote the book of Acts. And if you want a place to, to land this morning, you might turn to Acts chapter 1, because that's the, the longest description we have of the ascension of Jesus. At the end of Luke's gospel, after Jesus has died and risen from the dead, he tells us it's, it's almost the last verse of the gospel of Luke. He says, while he blessed them, talking about Jesus with his disciples, while he blessed them, he parted from them, and was carried up into heaven. Right? That's the ascension of Jesus. He was carried up into heaven. And then when we get to the book of Acts, which sort of picks up where the Gospel of Luke ends and starts to tell uh, the rest of the story of Jesus uh, about his ascent and his session and how he sent the Holy Spirit and continued to work through the church. Uh, and uh, he begins in chapter 1 by telling us about Jesus's. Ascension In verse 9 of Acts chapter 1, it says, When he had said these things, when Jesus had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So one of the reasons why the ascension is significant is because it tells us why Jesus is no longer here, why he's no longer physically present on the earth. He rose from the dead, but unlike other people who were raised from the dead in the Bible, like Lazarus, for example, Jesus rose from the dead never to die again. Lazarus had to die again. But Jesus, the Bible says, rose never to die again. So where is he? Well, he's not here. And the reason why he's not here is because he has ascended into heaven. He has returned to the presence of his father in heaven. But when he left, notice what he took with him. His human body. He was physically raised from the dead. Right? He wasn't just a ghost or a spirit. And when he ascended into heaven, he didn't leave his physical body behind. He ascended into heaven as a man. Right? As the one God-man. So just as he took on flesh when he was born of the virgin, became flesh and blood, remained God, but is now also man, and he became man so he could die, right? because as God he couldn't die, but because he became man he was able to die and take our place on the cross, die for our sin. He rose from the dead, again, with a physical human body, with flesh and blood, right? Securing our eternal salvation and bodily resurrection. And when he ascended into heaven, he did not leave all that behind. He ascended as the God-man. Which is significant 
Right? Because that means that Jesus is representing us in heaven as the God-man. And He has gone into heaven ahead of us, into the presence of the Father. So He is no longer physically present in His human body on the earth, but He is physically present in His human body in heaven. And when He returns... He'll have that human body still, that glorified, resurrected, physical, human body. The angels who speak to the disciples mention that he is going to return at his ascent. Right? They watch The disciples watch him ascend and, and he's t- hidden by a cloud, taken out of their sight. And then they say in verse 11, This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. It's going to be the same Jesus. The same God-man. So not only did Jesus take our place on the cross, He continues to represent us even now in heaven. And what is He doing in heaven? Why is He up there? What is He up to while He's up there? Well, the next phrase of the creed says that He sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Now, this again is something that I really feel like we don't realize how much the Bible talks about this. And this is one of those things that just, it doesn't show up um, in, our, in our thinking, in our talking about Christ as much maybe as it ought. Uh, because we just haven't had our attention drawn to it as much as we have other things. Right? But I, I, one of the things I want to do, I, I, I can't tell you every reference in the Bible to the session of Christ, but I, I want to bring many of them, of them to your attention just so you can see how significant the Bible tells us this is, how important this is, how often it comes up. If you want to turn to Acts chapter 2, if you're in Acts, if you turn to Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2 is the story of the day of Pentecost when the uh, Holy Spirit came upon the disciples that were gathered there in Jerusalem and they began to speak in all kinds of different languages and they were declaring the things that God had done and a, a crowd was gathered and was listening to the apostles and trying to figure out what in the world was going on. And Peter, who was often the spokesman for the disciples, right? Peter began to preach and he talked about Jesus and about his crucifixion, which had happened there just outside Jerusalem not many days before, roughly a couple of months uh, before that time. And he talks about his crucifixion and about his resurrection, about how all that was, was God's purpose and God's plan, but that those who had put Christ to death obviously had done something uh, sinful and, and wicked, but that it was nonetheless God's plan for Jesus to die and Jesus to rise and that fulfilled the scripture. And then he began to explain how Jesus was behind what they were witnessing that day. That Jesus was the one who had sent the Holy Spirit. And and here's what he says, beginning in verse 33 of Acts chapter 2. He says, well, actually, let me back up to verse 32. It says, this Jesus, the Jesus they had crucified, this Jesus... God raised up. That's his resurrection. God raised up. And of that, we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. 
Now, how does he know that? He says, Jesus has been exalted to God's right hand, and he received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, and he has poured out the Holy Spirit upon us, and that's, that's what you're seeing. That's what you're hearing. That's why all these men are able to speak this way in all these different languages. How does he know that? Verse 34. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That's a quote from Psalm 110, which is one of David's psalms. Jesus talked about this psalm, I think it's in Matthew 22, uh, with the, the Pharisees and the kind of explaining what this psalm is about. The psalm is about him. It's about the Messiah. right? The first Lord mentioned there is God the Father. The second Lord, the one David calls my Lord, is the Messiah, Jesus. And so he says, the Lord, God the Father, said to my Lord, the Messiah, the Savior Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so Peter is saying what happened to Jesus after he was raised from the dead is exactly what David said would happen in Psalm 110, which is that the the Messiah, Jesus, the Savior, has been raised up to God's right hand where he is now seated and God is putting all of his enemies underneath his feet. He is still alive. Peter says we we are witnesses of his resurrection. The tomb was empty. Jesus presented himself to us alive. We've seen his physical body. We know he's not in the tomb. And he has been exalted, lifted up to God's right hand. And from there he has poured out the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's what happened. And that's what was prophesied in the Old Testament. Jesus himself predicted it. In Matthew 26, 64, just not long before Jesus went to the cross, he said, I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. This is where I'm about to be. I'm about to be seated at the right hand of power, that is the right hand of God, Jesus said. We call this the session of Christ, for the same reason we talk about court being in session. If you go to, if you have jury duty or you go to court, right, the judge comes in, is all rise for the honorable judge, and, and he comes in, then when he sits down, right, what do we say? Court is now in session, right, because the judge has been seated. In the same way, we talk about the session of Christ because Jesus, who is going to come to judge, he has been seated at the Father's right hand. Now, why does that matter? Why is that such a big deal? Well, one of the reasons it matters is we ought to know where Jesus is right now. If you are a follower of Christ, if you belong to Christ, if you worship Christ, you ought to be able to tell people where He is and, and what He's up to. And so where is this Jesus that you follow? What is he doing right now? Well, I can tell you where he is. He's in heaven. He's at God's right hand. Paul says in Colossians 3.1, If then you, Christian, have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. In Hebrews 8.1, he says, uh, Now the point in what we are saying is this. 
We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. And in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, this is a familiar passage, I feel like, to, to most of us, I think. And yet, I couldn't have told you that the session of Christ was in this passage, if you'd asked me. You know, name some passages where the session of Christ is mentioned. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which, seek, which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is where Jesus is. This is where our attention is to be turned as believers, as Paul says in Colossians 3.1. We are to seek the things that are above, because that's where Christ is, in heaven at the Father's right hand. It's also significant, the session of Christ is also significant, because it signals that Jesus' work is finished. The session, of, the session of Christ signals that Jesus' work is finished. What do you like to do when you're done with your day of work? Come home and have a seat, right? Sit down somewhere comfortable. You're done. Put your feet up, right? Because your day's work is done. Here's what the book of Hebrews says again. Hebrews 1.3 says, After making purification for sins, that's his chief work. Right? After he died on the cross for sin. After making purification for sins, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Why? Because his work is done. Hebrews 10, 11, and 12 says, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of God. The, the contrast in, in the imagery there is clear, right? The priests are standing offering sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. Why? Because their work is never done. Because their sacrifices can never really truly take away sin. Jesus offers one sacrifice and he gets to sit down because his sacrifice is sufficient and so his work is done. That's why the session is important. It communicates to us that Jesus completed what was necessary to save us. There's nothing to be added. There's nothing more to be done. It is finished, as Jesus himself said. It's also significant because Jesus, though his work of atonement is finished, that doesn't mean he's not doing anything. He is doing something. He is active. In fact, he's interceding on our behalf. We talk about intercessory prayer, right? We pray for other people. We intercede for them. The Bible says that Jesus himself intercedes for us. And guess what? He's got the best position in the universe to do that from. Right at the Father's right hand. Romans 8.34 says, Who is to condemn? Who's going to condemn you? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. 
Right? Listen to Paul's logic there. Right? Who's going to condemn you, he says. The person who has the right to condemn you, the person who's the judge of the universe, as we're going to see in just a moment, is Jesus. And what did Jesus do? Is Jesus going to condemn you? If you belong to Christ, if you've trusted in Christ, is He going to condemn you? No, here's how we know that. Number one, Jesus died for us. The one who died to save you is not going to condemn you. Number two, He says more than that, who was raised, right? His resurrection was also for our vindication, for our salvation, as Paul says in Romans 4.25, is for our justification, And then third, he says, he's also at the right hand of God and he's interceding for us. Not only is he not going to condemn you, he's pleading your case. Not on your merits, but on his. That one's mine. That one's mine. I atoned for their sin. I did everything necessary to cleanse them. No condemnation for that one. That one belongs to me. He's in heaven. His work is finished. He's interceding for us at the Father's right hand. And then one more thing about the session of Christ that's important is it tells us that Jesus is right now reigning supreme. That He rules over everything. This is what Paul was talking about in Ephesians 1 in the passage we read earlier in the service. I'll just read the, the chief part of it again one more time. He's talking about the power of God that was at work in Christ's resurrection and that is at work in us. Um, that God you know, works toward us. And he says, according to the working of His great might, God's great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. And here's what's significant about that, Paul says. He's seated at God's right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority, and power, and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now if you think about people in this world who have great power, extensive rule, significant dominion. The people who are sort of close to that person, under that person's umbrella of protection, they feel pretty safe as long as that person is in power. But those people never stay in power forever. And when that person's no longer in power, then you're probably in trouble because their protection is gone. And you also have to worry about the fact that there may be somebody else out there who has more power than the person who you think is protecting you. And if they overcome the person who's protecting you, then you're probably going to be in trouble. Because again, that umbrella of protection is gone. Neither of those fears or concerns apply to the reign of Christ. Christ's reign is unending. He's above every rule and dominion and so on. Not only in this age, but also in the age to come, Paul says. And there's nobody else who's even a close rival to him. Because he's been exalted to a place far above. Not some rule, not most rule. All rule 
and authority and power and dominion. And above every name that is named. He is more powerful than all. He is seated above all. He rules over all. Everything and everyone is under his feet. And Paul says he has, God has given to the church the exalted, supremely reigning Christ. It is a gift to us that we belong to the Jesus who rules over everything and everyone so that we have no reason to fear any earthly or spiritual power. They're all under Him. They're all under His feet. They're all under His control. Our Savior, in other words, is sovereign over all. And this is why we want people to come to Christ, to believe in Christ. If there's somebody here who's not a Christian, this Jesus laid down His life on the cross for sinners, rose again to secure eternal, never-ending salvation for sinners, is right now interceding for sinners who will trust Him, who belong to Him, will one day return for those same people so that they can inherit and receive and enjoy the fullness of that salvation forever in the presence of God in a new heavens and a new earth. And all you have to do to receive that is turn from your sin and call out to Jesus in faith. Trust Him. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to earn it. He already did the work. He already sat down. The work is finished. You just have to trust Him. And if you are a Christian... We need to remind ourselves of that all the time. That the work is done. We don't need to try to add to it. We can't possibly add to it. And that we have no reason to fear. Because our Savior reigns supreme. Last thing is that from there, the creed says, from there He will come to judge the living and the dead. This is what the angel said to the apostles when they saw Jesus ascend into heaven, right? They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. That's where he is now, and that's where he is coming back from. He will come from heaven. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. Jesus is coming back, and He's coming back to judge. Now, that might throw you for a moment, right? because maybe, maybe you think, are we really supposed to associate judgment with Jesus? I, mean, I thought Jesus was sort of like the opposite of judging. Right? Isn't Jesus the one who said, judge not that you be not judged? Why does it say that Jesus is coming to judge if he said to us, judge not that you be not judged? Well, first of all, when Jesus said, judge not that you be not judged, he didn't mean that all judgment is wrong and that nobody should ever judge anybody. That's actually a misunderstanding of what he's saying there. Because if you go on in that passage in Matthew chapter 7, what he says is, what what he's addressing is hypocritical judgment. Right, so he says, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. 
In other words, don't be going around poking out everybody else's problems, little problems, right? When you've got a truckload of problems you haven't dealt with of your own. That's hypocritical. Don't do that. And if you do do that, the judgment that's going to be poured out to you, you don't, I mean, that's not going to be good. But Jesus also clearly told us that He is the one who is going to judge. In John 5, Jesus said, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. The Father has given judgment to the Son, to Jesus. He goes on to say a few verses later, He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Jesus is the one who's coming to judge. And later, in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 10, Peter's preaching at Cornelius' house. He's telling them about Jesus, telling them the gospel, how they can be saved. But a part of that message, he says, is this. He commanded, Jesus commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that He is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Paul says the same thing in 2 Timothy 4.1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. Which means Jesus is going to judge everybody. It's not just those who are going to be alive at Jesus' return, and it's not just those who will have died before Jesus' return, but all, both the living and the dead, all will be judged. That doesn't mean that all will be condemned. But it means we'll all will have to give an account. Even Christians. Right, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.9, We all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Why? So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. In Romans 14, he says it this way, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. All of us have to give an account. All of us have to appear before God. All of us have to appear before Christ. He is the one who's going to call to come and call everyone to, to account. But for those who are in Christ, Romans 8.1 says, there's therefore now no condemnation. So in this, in this sense, judgment is not the same as judged and condemned. But everybody has to give an account. Which means the way that we live now matters. That's why it emphasizes he's coming to judge the living and the dead. There's no escape clause. Right? Well, if I'm, if I'm alive and it's coming, maybe I get out. Nope. If I've already died before his coming, maybe I get to escape. Nope. Everybody is going to have to appear before Christ, which means how we live now matters, and that's why the, uh, a response to the gospel is required. If, you, if you're not a Christian and you hear the gospel, you need to respond. You need to repent. You need to believe, because one day you're going to give an account to Jesus. And you're not going to be able to plead ignorance. You're not going to be able to say, I didn't know. You've heard and you've been told, and one day you will give an account. And the only way to be sure, the only way that's possible for you to be cleared on that day of all guilt, cleared of all charges, is if 
before that day, you hide yourself in Christ. You trust in Christ. You ask Him to save you. And the Bible says if you do that, He won't turn you away. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The ascension of Christ, we don't think about very often. But it tells us why He's not here. Where He's gone. He's not left us or abandoned us. He's ascended into heaven. From there, He's poured out the Holy Spirit, which every believer has dwelling inside of them, even now. Knowing where Christ is and what He's doing should encourage us, strengthen us, help us not to live in fear of those who are more powerful than us, whether physical or spiritual powers. I should assure us that Jesus is in control, that His work is finished, that He's interceding for us, even now. And we should look forward to the day of His return and live ready to give an account to Him, knowing that when He comes, we will have to have to give an account, but also that if we're in Christ, there will be no condemnation on that day. He will come, not against us, but for us, so that we can dwell with Him forever. Let's pray.